Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Braxton Hunter, and this is Trinity Radio. And today we're going to be taking a look at one of the world's biggest atheist podcasters and figuring out how getting the Bible wrong can cause some major problems. Stick with us. So I've been wanting to do a show on Seth Andrews for quite some time because he's making a big impact. He is, as I said, one of the most well-known atheist podcasters in the world, if not the most well-known. He's an engaging public speaker. He's written books. He has a YouTube presence. And because of that, I'm sure that his resources, the stuff he's putting out there, is probably resulting in a lot of people doubting Christianity or walking away from Christianity. And so as a result, we need to take a look and see how serious this threat is and give a proper response. Now, before we begin, the narrative for this is kind of kind of going to be like this. I think that Seth Andrews... Um, I, I think he seems like a wonderful human being. I think I would enjoy being around this guy, hanging around with him. He's got a really engaging personality. He's funny. In fact, some of his uh, talks at conferences and things are almost like a comedy routine. And, uh, and, and all that is true. I'm sure he's a lovely person. And as I always say, this is about the content. This is not about the individual or, or directed toward the individual specifically. However, um, I, I have to say that he kind of reminds me of a preacher. You know, he says in his deconversion testimony that he kind of was one of those guys that early on was on stage. They were he was doing some public speaking even before he could drive a car. And because of that, he's developed a really great way of communicating. He's a good communicator. In fact, he was a Christian radio host, if I understand things correctly, before he became an atheist. And so um, but he strikes me very much as a preacher, like an atheist preacher. One thing he does really well is he understands the importance and the power of good illustrations. In fact, uh, a lot of his talks are a lot of memes, but they're also good illustrations that he includes in there. For example, in one of his talks, he wants to make a point about how I think his point is, uh, sorry if I get this wrong, Seth, that, um, you know, the idea of Christianity, the idea of the Christian God seems really great, seems really nice. And we like the the um, kind of idealized picture of a loving God. But if you look under the hood, it's not exactly that way. But he doesn't jump right into that. He starts off by talking about the film American Sniper and how the subject of that film actually it wasn't as uh, clean cut of a testimony or a story about the American Sniper as you think. There were some questionable things going on there. And then he talks about Mother Teresa, same thing, and he ramps up. So you've got a pop culture figure, then you've got a uh, religious figure, then you've got God. So he ramps up. It's very nice. It's layered the way he does things like that really, really good. Um, and like a preacher, he goes to scripture. Uh, but I think there are some major problems in how he goes to scripture. But before, before we get directly there, I want to segue into this topic from some videos we've been doing about the nature of doubt, because um, doubt is a thing that happens. Uh, and as a result of that, we ought to be prepared for it. We ought to, as churches and church leaders and church people, be open to hearing from people about their doubts and talking with them about their doubts. One thing that we saw in some journal uh, data recently is that um, if someone who's questioning their faith or experiencing doubt has a strong group of uh, believers that can uh, explore those issues with them and actually find the correct answers, 80%, I think, or more of those people remain in church and actually their faith flourishes as a result. But if they don't have that support group to explore things with them and they just kind of go at it alone, um, many of them don't continue uh 
with a robust faith like they could have had. And I think this happened with uh, Seth Andrews, even though he talks about his parents having um, being like theologians almost or, or maybe officially in some capacity theologians and understanding languages and all those kind of things. Uh, the fact of the matter is we see uh, some very un, very unbiblical views, and I say that gently because, again, I like this person. I don't want any condescension in this, but just some very unbiblical understandings of certain key concepts. In fact, some of the key concepts that have to do with the story of Christianity, the story of the Bible in a very fundamental way. Uh, but when it comes to doubt, even some problematic views. So let's go ahead and listen to what Seth Andrews has to say um, about the issue of doubt, and we'll begin with him talking about this in his deconversion testimony. I, I really didn't question. I mean, I was, you have to think about the affirming power of the faith, of, of church culture. I was a Christian broadcaster when I was 22. I mm -hmm. stayed in Christian radio for about a dozen years. So, I mean, people are telling you how great you are. People are telling you you're doing God's good work, and everybody around you, everybody who listens, everybody they know who listens. Uh, I had relatives come in from out of town. They toured this. I mean, everyone I knew was like, you're doing God's good work. We're so proud. My parents were you know, so freaking proud of, of their son and probably their accomplishment as, as parents, training up a child in sure. the way that he should go, you know. And so and there's not a lot of motivation to kick the tires when you're being affirmed all the time. And <laughs> you are not surrounded by really anybody who disagrees with you theologically. I mean, we had our splinters in the church, but mostly, yes, God exists. Yes, the Bible's true. Uh, yes, there is a heaven and a hell. And yes, you have to say the uh, salvation prayer and all that stuff. That was without question. And if you started to question, you were a pariah, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know, it, it was a catalyst of a lot of stuff. I wrote about it in my autobiography that it was like, so if in his church, if you were a questioner, if you began to question things, you were seen as a pariah, you know, someone who's kind of almost an outcast in the church culture here. Now, this is something, again, that I am really against, um, and I don't doubt that this happened in his church. I've heard of it happening in some churches. Now, uh, I may say something here that's going to make you sound like I'm questioning him. I'm not questioning him. But fortunately, there are a lot of churches where this doesn't happen. I've spoken in literally hundreds of churches over the past 15 to 20 years all over the United States and even around the world. Um, I sent out, as part of my doctoral work, uh, questionnaires to pastors in all major regions of the United States and even other countries. And all of those churches, all of those questionnaires I sent out everywhere that I've been, I have recognized uh, pastors who and church leaders who very much want to have those conversations with questioning and doubting believers. They want to, to talk about that. They want to connect them with uh, resources that can help answer these questions. But in churches like Seth's, where you're looked at as, in his words, a pariah, this is a major problem because remember what we saw. If you have a group to help re look through these things that are aware of the resources, that can explore this with you, then in, in most cases, it leads to a deepening and a flourishing of your faith. But if you don't have that, problems can arise and people can walk away. And so um, th this is a major problem. One of the things that can happen is if you don't have a group that is aware of where the resources are, you can end up coming away with unbiblical concepts, and you can end up finding yourself laughing at things that you think are biblical that are not biblical. Let me give you an example of this. So here's a lecture that was given during the Unholy Trinity tour. I think he was with Arnon Ra and Matt Dillahunty, and they went to Australia, and he's speaking here about the nature of doubt. And so I want us to take a listen to what he says. When I was a believer, doubt was a problem. 
James told us, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. It will be given. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. If you doubt, you're shaky, you're a feather in the wind, you're unreliable. Okay, so let's go back to this passage, uh, James 1, 5 through 8. Now, um, this is actually misunderstood by a lot of church people, no question. In fact, there are many people who are in the sort of a church environment where the idea is you got to work up enough faith in order to get certain things to happen through your prayer life. And I've actually heard Seth talk about this in another uh, lecture where he talks about prayer and how it's like you got to work up enough of this faith. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago that there, there's this idea. I get this from Greg Boyd. Greg Boyd talks about how uh, in this sort of an environment, there is this un idea like you've got like at a carnival with, a, with one of those uh, things where you got to hit it with a mallet. You hit this pad with a mallet and it knocks this puck up this pole. And if it can get all the way to the top, it rings this bell. And he's like, it's as if people think if they can muster up enough strength to hit the faith uh, puck up the faith pole to hit the faith bell. And if they can get it up there, well, then then whatever thing you're wanting to happen will get done. But you, you just don't have enough faith. You got to try harder. The reason you're not being healed of whatever disease or the reason that whatever is because you don't have enough faith. And this is just a, a, an unbiblical understanding of what the Bible teaches. In fact, uh, let's listen to what Greg Boyd has to say. Uh, I'll read from it. J James chapter 1, verse 5. This very text is a great example, and there's a lot of uh, kind of fundamentalist in the, in the negative sense of the term theological freight that is brought in by Seth and dumped onto this passage in order to get the understanding that, it, that he gets. And there's also language issues. Um, so let's look at uh, what Boyd has to say about this. He says, uh, so, we've, so here's the passage. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you, James 1.5. James then continues, but when you ask. Now this indicates that James is not promising believers they can expect to receive whatever they ask for if they simply believe and not doubt. He's speaking specifically about uh, asking God for wisdom. Hence, if this verse warrants the assumption that exercising faith involves suppressing doubt, a point I will in a moment argue against, it does so only with respect to our coming to God for wisdom. So even if we wanted to take it exactly the way that Seth is, is uh, taking it, it's only in this passage with respect to wisdom itself. Um, but what about, what's this wavering all about, uh, Gre uh, Boyd wants to know. Second, the word translated as doubt, diacrino, in this passage, literally means to separate, distinguish, distinguish, judge, or evaluate. When used to describe an activity that a person does in their own mind and heart, the word signifies they are in the process of evaluating or judging competing ideas, convictions, ambitions, or commitments. It thus signifies that the person is not yet resolved about a matter, but is continuing to waver between various options. Indeed, some versions of the Bible Bible appropriately translate the word simply as waver. The wavering this word describes uh, can justly be described as doubting if the person is wavering between competing beliefs or ideas, each of which claims to be uh, true. In this case, the person is not yet convinced about the truth of any of these competing beliefs or ideas and thus can be said to be in a state of doubt. But a person can waver between other things in their mind and heart that we wouldn't say puts them in a state of doubt. Suppose a father is wavering between whether he should obey his boss who has told him to work 
late or to leave on time so he can make it to his daughter's piano recital as he had promised her. He's certainly wavering back and forth, but he wouldn't be described as wavering. We wouldn't describe his wavering as doubting. He's simply conflicted over his loyalties. Or imagine a person who is wavering between competing options when one of the options is obviously right. For example, suppose a woman was wavering between whether she wants to honor her wedding vows and remain faithful to her husband or to run off with the man she's become enamored with at work. This woman is certainly wavering back and forth as she evaluates and judges her options, but we again wouldn't describe her as being in a state of doubt. I think we'd rather be inclined to say that the very fact that she is wavering about this matter reflects a lack of loyalty on her part and boyd summarizes i'm convinced that this is the sort of wavering james is describing it's a sense that is captured well by the new living translation and here's the new living translation of the verse but when you ask him be sure that your faith is in god alone do not waver for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. If this translation is accepted, then James is not describing a person who is wavering between whether they believe they'll receive wisdom when they ask for it. James is rather describing a person who is wavering between whether they will remain loyal and seek wisdom from God alone on the one hand, or whether they will be duplicitous by, but, uh, by also trying to derive wisdom from the world. In other words, this has nothing to do with the sort of intellectual doubt that uh, Seth Andrews thinks that it has to do with. Um, and a lot of Christians do. I'll give him that. Instead, what it has to do with, probably, and at least possibly, is this, uh, this notion that am I, am I going to place my loyalty only in God in seeking wisdom, or am I going to seek it from somewhere else? Likewise, let's go on to the next passage that he, that he references. In all they do, if you doubt... You're shaky. You're a feather in the wind. You're unreliable. Proverbs said, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Right. Where is your loyalty? Are you going to trust in God for these things? Or are you going to rely on your own, your own ways, your own scheming, your own plotting, that sort of thing? It, the Bible does not teach that it's wrong to think for yourself. The Bible doesn't teach that it's wrong, something wrong with you if you experience doubt. That's not what's going on here. In fact, as we've said before, uh, I said in a recent episode that it's not that we should want to doubt. It's not like that. And I'll even go so far as to say it's not that doubt is necessarily a good state to be in, especially for a long period of time. You need to deal with these doubts. Uh, nevertheless, a person who is faith, this is an unbiblical understanding of doubt or of these passages that could have to do with doubt. It's also a misunderstanding of the nature of faith. Faith has to do with trust and loyalty. So, as I said in a previous episode, if someone has like Cartesian certainty about God, they are absolutely certain about God. Or if a person is really experiencing a lot of doubt, both of those people can exercise the same amount of faith. Because faith has, is not to do with whether you're doubting or not. Faith is your trust, your loyalty to, um, the one, to God, to the patron who is, who is uh, bestowing you with, with all these goods. And so that's a little bit of uh, uh, socio-rhetorical language mixed in there. But the fact of the matter is you can exercise faith even if you're in a state of doubt, and you can exercise faith if you're in a state of absolute Cartesian certainty. And what we see going on here in this passage doesn't necessarily have to do with intellectual doubt about a set of doctrines or belief in God or whatever. And even if it did, according to this passage, we're talking about asking God for wisdom, not just 
Christian, Christian beliefs in general. So um, this is the sort of thing that if we had had a close-knit group who could have supplied these resources to a doubting Seth, we might have, we might have come away with better answers. Um, more scholarly answers, and perhaps he went looking for a group like that. Perhaps he had a group like that. But if so, we would, we would have expected him to come across these kinds of answers and not be purporting what, unfortunately, some churches purport that we've seen him purport here in this, in this section. When I was in Christian school and in Sunday school and in vacation Bible school, they would often say, you should be like one of these disciples and their faith. Be more like them. Be godly. Who's the disciple that they never said, be like that guy? <laughs> I love it. Somebody said Judas. He's not going to say Judas, but somebody said Judas. Like, which disciple shouldn't you be like? Yeah, obviously you shouldn't be like Judas. <laughs> Thomas. Oh, Thomas. You're talking about Thomas. Okay. Why? Doubting Thomas. After Christ rose from the dead, it was Thomas who refused to believe until he could see Jesus' wounds. John 20, 25, The other disciples therefore said unto him, We've seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And what was Jesus' response? Jesus said, Because you've seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and believed. I'm reminded of the, um, uh, this guy is a senior apostle in the Mormon church. His name is... Okay, he's on to something else. It's, uh, but, but the idea here is, look, Thomas was experiencing doubt. Clearly the Bible is against doubt because uh, it seems like Jesus is chiding Thomas here for doubting. Uh, this gets brought up a lot, and the answer is very simple. The, the point is not these people who haven't seen any evidence but just believe without doubting you know, they're blessed, whereas you, you're, you, you've gotten to see my nail-scarred hands in the, the hole in my side. Well, hold on a second. It's not as simple as that. Is it just that Thomas got to see the nail-scarred hands in the hole in his side? No. The point is, it shouldn't surprise Thomas that something incredible has happened in the life of Jesus, given the fact that Thomas has already seen so much. Thomas has already been with Jesus and seen amazing things. So this was uh, uh, what we might call an unbridled skepticism, given the fact that Thomas has seen so much. And it's not saying that these people that come after you are going to have no evidence. Clearly, we do have incredible evidence. That's why you have Christian apologists giving the evidence. You may not like it, but we have an entire playlist on evidences related to the resurrection and the truth of Christianity specifically on this channel, not to mention the, 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 uh, the playlist we have on God's existence. But the point is not in this passage, the people that come after you are not going to have any evidence, and, and so they're going to be more blessed than you who has evidence. No, it's... You believed, you saw these nail-scarred hands in the, in the hole in my side, but you've had all this other stuff that, you, that you've seen that they're not going to get to see, and you should have believed on the basis of these things. So uh, we're going to keep trucking now, um, and I think we, what we're going to see is more of this. But when you take this stuff into account, um, if, if I believed what apparently Seth Andrews believes about some aspects of the Bible, specifically what he's going to get to here in just a few moments when we look at the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, if I believe some of what uh, Seth Andrews says, I, I might find it laughable too. 
I might find some of it mock worthy too. I don't think I'm the type that would mock it, but I, I might understand it. I, I might feel kind of that way. It might resonate. And I think that's how a lot of internet atheists see it. They see this sort of cartoon version of the Bible. And as a result, it's mo they mock it, which frankly is one of the most powerful things that they have at their disposal is mockery. And uh, what they come away with is, is you know, this, this sort of an attitude about it that Seth seems to have. Here's a clip with Vocab Malone where Vocab Malone has laid out uh, a pretty decent argument for God's existence, the transcendental argument, um, most commonly comes up among a type of apologist called presuppositionalists. I'm not a presuppositionalist, but I don't have a problem with presuppositionalism as such, and I certainly don't have a problem with the tag argument, the transcendental argument. But after they're in the midst of engaging on this, and here's what happens I think is pretty interesting. So let's take a listen now. Question. I just want you to follow the logical trail. I'm not saying you acquiesce. When he would communicate, would it by definition, not be accurate 100% of the time. If there was an omnipotent, omniscient, all-wise, all-knowing, sort of an old man in the sky kind of a well, I, and is why, Seth, why did you have to add a cartoon to my description? Well, See, that's, you that's understand how this sounds, doesn't, but, don't you? If there was an omnipotent, omniscient deity, if there was no. who, who knew all and, See, and could do all, would that be infallible? Would it be? Here's would the that thing. word be perfect? Seth, for you to accurately critique my worldview and for you to get a hearing among Christians who actually think about this stuff and not sort of intimidated the first time they hear an atheist argument, you've got to critique us from within our own framework, not the no, way that makes it no look well then I, no one's gonna no one's gonna take it serious it's not gonna get it's not gonna no this is philosophy this is not just games do you know the stuff that we've been talking about is described in page after page of david hume and david hume applied this hyper skeptical empiricism to the basic questions that yeah, we are but, talking about and do you know that if most atheists read him they would be humbled and chastised because they spend their time watching youtube videos but david hume critiques the positions that many atheists hold without even giving it a second thought. And well, I, would I would challenge, challenge you to read some David Hume. All right, so, so yeah, so Vocab Malone calls him out on this because you're right. Among some, not all, Internet atheists and YouTube atheists that get all their information from YouTube, among those kinds of people— yeah, I mean, you're going to get a brand of atheism that the greats among um, non-Christian thinkers, the, the, the brightest minds, would laugh at, would, would reject outright. And so you, you, but you can't bring yourself to critique this without the cartoon character sort of um, illustrations to kind of mock at it instead of dealing with it um, on its own footing. Uh, you know, if you would, if you would pick up, say something like cup, uh, something like this, a good comprehensive collection of writings in Western philosophy, um, you, you would, what you would find is that these are serious ideas. There has been an ocean of ink spilt on these issues and to dismiss what's being said with such glib certainty. My, I'm not speaking this specifically to Seth Andrews, but to anyone out there who's doing it, uh, 
it comes off as laughable to even the academically minded atheists today who are speaking it and teaching at Ivy League schools and places like that, red brick schools, um, it, it, because they understand what the brightest minds have done with this. They understand that some of the most brilliant figures in the history of uh, humanity have been Christians who have been doing work on these issues and that these are complex and detailed uh, works that confront the most difficult issues and have responses that you can't just brush away as sort of a cartoonish with sort of a cartoonish uh, uh, disposition about these things. It just um, it just doesn't work that way. And uh, and, you know, and even with the subject of doubt, uh, the history of the Christian faith has dealt with doubt. It, it really breaks my heart that Seth had a church that wouldn't uh, that, that treated him like a pariah or that he got that impression because all the way back to the Bible itself, we had that sort of thing. We had doubt among believers. Uh, some there's clearly evidence of that in the new Testament, particularly in the book of acts. And, um, this idea that some of the Jews were, were being tempted to go back to Judaism and to reject their newfound Christianity. Uh, in fact, believe it or not in the gospels, we see this in the gospel that some people think is the gospel that has, that, that is aimed toward unbelievers, the gospel of John, because it's written that you may believe. In fact, um, there is evidence. Some think that this was actually written as an apologetic for Christians, as a discipleship sort of feature, to uh, build up their faith as Christians. Uh, for example, Avery Dulles, the author of The Incredible A History of Apologetics. By the way, this is another one that um, you'd feel a bit silly with the glib certainty and the, uh, the cartoony sort of caricatures if you would read something like that, a really detailed academic account and work. But he says, the subtle liturgical and sacramental allusions throughout the Gospel of John would surely pass over the heads of even highly educated pagans. Thus, it would be an error to look upon this work any more than any of the New Testament writings as primarily addressed to those who did not yet profess the Christian faith. John's gospel is aimed at sustaining and intensifying the life of faith of all its readers, and in this sense has affinities with apologetic literature. One of the reasons that he says that is the author references the Jews when he is referring to those hostile to Jesus, but Israel is used more hospitably, and the Old Testament scripture is rallied in order to demonstrate why Jesus experienced rejection and why the Jews were wrong to reject him. So it's there in the New Testament. We already have this. Uh, the Bible is certainly open to, uh, the Bible presents us with an early church open to addressing the doubts of believers. Uh, Peter Damien, uh, during the Middle Ages, uh, admitting the ignorance of defense, I'm reading from my own doctoral work here, uh, ignorance of defenses against anti-Christian Jewish arguments could lead to doubt among believers. In his anti-logos contra Judaeus, he demands, one may add the that often harmful ineptitude and dangerous simplicity in such matters not only excite boldness in the unbelieving, but also beget error and doubt in the hearts of the faithful. So um, if you don't have um, if you if you're inept in your understanding of these of kind of apologetic responses and biblical uh, literature and these sorts of things, what can it lead to? It can bold, embolden and excite those who are unbelievers, and it can lead to um, doubt in those in the hearts of the faithful. He says, uh, jump ahead to the Reformation period. John Calvin talks about doubt for unbelief is so deeply rooted in our hearts, and we are so inclined to it, and not without hard struggle in each one, able to persuade himself of all that we confess with the mouth, namely that God is faithful. This is not necessarily about God's existence or the truth of Christianity, but the faithfulness of God in the midst, perhaps, of suffering something like that. So you have various types of doubt, but doubt is there in the Reformation period. 
where else is it? Um, C.S. Lewis talked about the danger of doubt. He talked about experiencing that. Uh, uh, certainly Mike Lycona in our day experienced uh, doubt. And in fact, it led him. He said about his doubt, I have been so uncertain of what I believe in terms of Jesus' resurrection that I prayed for God's guidance and continued patience. If the Christianity I was now doubting is true, I was walking on a balance beam and could have tipped toward either side. But yet, because of Mike Lycona's doubt and his working through it and looking at the best material on it, we have one of the best resources on the resurrection of the 21st century, at least, if not in the history of the church. So in every major period of church history, there has been doubt. But when someone was able to surround themselves with the best resources and a group of people that could work through it with them, what happened? They resulted in a firmer faith than they had before. And so uh, I, I think it's, it's heartbreaking that instead of that, what we get is a cartoonish version, an understanding of the Christian message that leads to this kind of mockery. In fact, there are people who get this. Seth Andrews uh, has mentioned before that he was that he was reading The God Delusion and that that was important and all those kind of things, Richard Dawkins. But yet, this is a cartoonish understanding of Christian apologetics, a response to Christian apologetics that's found in The God Delusion. Uh, for example, I've mentioned it before. Philosopher, we're going to look at philosopher Michael Roos, and here's what he had to say about The God Delusion. Evolutionists. An avowed unbeliever, he nonetheless argues for a space for religion and science to engage in respectful, informed dialogue, and for opponents to appreciate each other's intellectual history. Now there's an idea. Professor Roos believes the Christian faith can be reconciled with evolutionary theory. And as we found out, he has some very harsh criticisms for Richard Dawkins and the New Atheists. It's funny you should mention that because I want to talk to you about a particular scientist <coughs> Uh, who does some philosophy of science in his book, and I have heard you say there are few things more simple than Richard Dawkins' God delusion. <laughs> yeah, no, as I said, makes me ashamed to be an atheist, I think was the phrase I used. <laughs> what do you mean by that? In what way is it simple or well, simplistic? Well, I think it's, it's not simple, it's simplistic. I mean, there's nothing wrong with KISS, keep it simple, stupid. I mean, one of the virtues of science is simplicity. The trouble with Dawkins, I mean, you know, maybe this is envy. The guy sold three, three million copies of the, of the book. I wish, you know, I wish I'd sold three million copies of one of my books. Uh, I mean, the trouble is he just doesn't take the things that he's talking about seriously. Now, I defer to nobody in my admiration for Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene which he published 30 years ago about the nature of genetics. Now, yeah, so so he's, uh, when he stays in his lane, it's it's fine. But but here we have um, a shame to be an atheist because of these cartoonish responses and cartoonish caricatures. Are they persuasive with crowds that don't know any better? Are they persuasive with people on the Internet that don't know any better? Yes. And unfortunately, what is happening here, oftentimes I suspect having lived in this world and explored this quite a bit is these sort of mock this sort of mockery and this sort of in atheist preaching gets people sold on the rejection of Christianity and then by the time they encounter the more rigorous responses that Christians have from an academic source they're they've already got a new in group they're already they're already it's they're already they've got skin in the game already we saw that. I've, I've shown examples of that in the past. That's a major problem if we're seeking what's true, if we're looking for what is 
true. And so that's that's pretty important. All right, let's move forward now. And I want us to take a look at a discussion, a speech that uh, uh, he was giving on. This is called the God of Cancer. He's talking about all this, but he gets into the problem of evil. By the way, in this discussion, he keeps talking about a contradiction. Uh, if he's talking about contradict, now it's kind of unclear to me whether he's talking about, he, he talks about prayer for a long time, and I don't want to mischaracterize him, but I think what he's trying to say is there seems to be some kind of a contradiction between God lo- being a loving God who answers prayer, these kind of things, on the one hand, and the pain and suffering and evil that we see in the world on the other hand. That seems to be uh, what what he's saying. Now, if I'm wrong, I, I'm open to, to being wrong about that, but you, I'll link this in the in all these videos in the description. You can go watch them for yourself. But if that's what he's saying, I don't see what the contradiction is. The a contradiction that this would be an argument from evil, although informally given. And an, um, among arguments from evil, you have what are called logical arguments from evil, which assert that there is something incoherent, that there's some kind of a contradiction between. God's nature as an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful all God and the existence of pain and suffering and evil. There's some kind of a contradiction there. And then you have the evidential argument from evil. The evidential argument from evil is uh, uh, is more difficult to deal with, frankly, but softer in its claim. It doesn't say, therefore, God doesn't exist. Instead, what it's trying to show is that it's less likely that God exists given the existence of certain specifically gratuitous evils, evils that didn't seem to serve any greater good. But if Seth Andrews is pointing toward a contradiction, he's pointing toward what is called the logical argument from evil. Let me read to you what some have said, some people working in the field, have said about the logical argument from evil. William Rowe, says some philosophers have contended that the existence of evil is logically inconsistent with the existence of the theistic God. No one, I think, has succeeded in establishing such an extravagant claim. Indeed, granted incompatibilism, there is a fairly compelling argument for the view that the existence of evil is logically consistent with the existence of the theistic God. That is, This is what Paul Draper has to say. Although logical arguments from evil seemed promising to a number of philosophers in the 1950s and 1960s, they are rejected by the vast majority of contemporary philosophers of religion. And you can find that in the Oxford Handbook of Philosophy Theology, page 335. Michael Martin says, because of the failure of deductive arguments from evil, a theologians have developed inductive or probabilistic arguments from evil uh, for the non-existence of God. That's from Atheism, a Philosophical Justification, page 335. Though the logical argument from evil has been rejected by many atheist philosophers, it is alive and well among Internet atheists. And that's why we have problems like what we have right here. But if one would read a great book and you have to read books, I'm not saying Seth Andrews doesn't read books, but for anyone in the audience who is looking for something to read, the evidential argument from evil, this book here by Daniel Howard Snyder. This is a collection of essays from um, uh, various people, various atheists and uh, theists. And what you'll find there is uh, a more sober discussion of these issues. But uh, since he's raised that there's some kind of a contradiction, let's go ahead and take a listen to what he has to say, because actually not only is there a philosophical mistake, I think, made that we've just been discussing, there is also, and will and we'll be nuanced more, there, is all, there are also some biblical problems that we need to address. You know, Eve was tempted in the garden, and then it all went to sh- seeding into all of humanity a sin nature, and this brought about sickness and disease. We sinned. It's our fault. Surely I was sinful at birth. From the time my mother conceived me, I was already full of sin. 
So Psalm 51.5, he has it, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Um, if you look at, that's, an, that's I think the NIV translation, which is a cross between a translation and a paraphrase. If you look at the New American Standard, which is one of the more, uh, is, is one of the more literal translations, here's what it says. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, we're going to come back to why that may be important in just a few moments, but there are a few options for understanding this passage. Um, one option is that this passage in the middle of a poem uh, where, uh, with David in the Old Testament, he decides to stop what he's doing and give a treatise on the doctrine of original sin. Okay, that's one possibility. Another possibility is that he is, which, by the way, the, the doctrine, as many people think of it, is you are born uh, with a sin nature, a nature and environment inclined towards sin, and you are born guilty of Adam's sin. You're both sin, you, you both have not only a nature that's inclined towards sin and live in a sinful world, but you also are born guilty of Adam's sin. Okay, now that's one possibility that David meant all of that in this passage. And you would, by the way, you wouldn't necessarily get that from the New American Standard Version anyway. You get that from this NIV reading. But a lot of people do, even in the more literal translations, go that way because I think partly because they have the doctrine of original sin in mind when they, when they come to this passage. The second option is this is teaching something regarding the doctrine of original sin, but not necessarily that we are born guilty of Adam's sin, but rather he's expressing what we all, most all Christians recognize as true, which is that we are born with a nature and an environment that is inclined towards sin. Okay, he could just be teaching that. Or there's a third possibility. The third possibility, which I will not teach dogmatically because I can't teach it dogmatically, but I think it's important to mention here is ask a random person who you don't think has heard of this passage before and ask them, what do you think this means? I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Ask them what, you th what they think that means. In sin my mother conceived me. Are they going to think what that means is that the child was born guilty of someone else's sin from birth? Or are they going to think it means that the mother was involved in some adulterous or fornicative relationship? I'm not saying that is the case. Is there any biblical uh, reason to believe this is true? Well, there is some biblical data. If you go back to the story of when Samuel comes to the house of Jesse to anoint David king, they line up all of Jesse's sons there and Jesse doesn't bring out David. You say, well, yeah, he's embarrassed of David. Well, why would he be embarrassed of David? From what we know of David as a young man, he was a pretty darn impressive young man. And when he brings him in, the Bible mentions that he's ruddy, which many scholars believe means reddish hair, red-complected sort of a thing. Um, that whole idea could lend evidence toward this uh, to the, toward this idea, but I'm not I'm not putting that forward as do a dogmatic truth, and I wouldn't want to be insulting to David's mother. Instead, what I want to bring up here is the fact that there are several things on offer. Only one of these possible explanations would support the, the point that um, Seth wants to make. And even if we go with the point that Seth wants to make, that this is referring to the standard as it stand as it's typically understood doctrine of original sin, that we are born with a sin nature and a guilt nature. Uh, if we understand all of that, does that go anywhere that Seth needs it to go? Let's continue and see. Me, I was already full of sin. 
Let us consider something. God reveals that God himself, in Genesis you can read this, God himself created the serpent that tempted Eve, the giver of temptation that spun into motion the destruction of the world. In fact, all things have been created through him and for him. Ezekiel. Yeah, God made everything. Of course, everyone affirms this. God made everything, and some of the creatures that he made did bad things. This will be a surprise to no one. Um, now, let's hear what he says here, because this is really interesting. Ezekiel 28, 15. Ezekiel 28 said God himself created Lucifer. Oh, that's something I'd kind of like a do-over on, don't you? Isaiah. Okay, uh, so Ezekiel 28. Let's get there. Ezekiel 28, 15. Now, I'm going to recommend a resource to you. There's a great little book. It's really readable. And it's called um, Sense and Nonsense About Angels and Demons by Ken Boa and Rob Bowman. In fact, I spoke at a conference with Rob Bowman and sat next to him at dinner. And I said to him, I said, I read that little book, uh, Sense and Nonsense About Angels and Demons. I thought it was fantastic. He said, really? He said, because it doesn't sell very well. Maybe you could give me an endorsement for it, and I'm sure then it will sell well. I never gave him the endorsement, but I should have. But it's a great little book. These are two uh, really sensible guys. And they break this down really well. So I'm going to... First of all, there's two passages in the Old Testament that you probably, you may not even know about that many people point to as kind of giving you Satan's origin story or more information about Satan. But in neither case is it necessarily true that these give you that. Uh, one of those is um, Isaiah 14, and the other one is Ezekiel 28. Now, Isaiah 14 is talking about the king of Babylon. All right, um, and, and see if this sounds familiar. Uh, verses 7 through 11, Isaiah 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly, on the heights of Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Now, that's Isaiah 14. I'm going to read to you what they say about this passage. Many people think that two poetic passages of the Old Testament prophetic books describe Satan's fall. The first is in Isaiah 14, where uh, Isaiah delivers a scathing prophecy against the king of Babylon. The prophecy speaks of God's breaking the king's scepter that he uh, used to oppose peoples. The earth rejoices at his humiliation, and the inhabitants of Sheol, the realm of the dead, eagerly anticipate the king joining them. And then the passage comes that I just read. Historically, Christians have read this prophecy as looking beyond the human king of Babylon to the devil. In fact, one of his most popular names derives from this passage. And by the way, I'm glad we came to this because this is a pet peeve of mine when people use the phrase Lucifer, the word Lucifer, as though it is a proper name for the devil. Uh, here's what they say. Uh, the Latin Vulgate translated the Hebrew word Halel, which meant shining one or star in verse 12, as Lucifer, a translation retained in the NKJV. However, if we, so this isn't a proper name for, uh, for Satan anyway. It comes from a Hebrew word that just means bright shining one, and in the Latin Vulgate, it's a Lucifer. Um, all right. A Let's see here. Uh, however, if we take verses 12 through 15 in context, they appear to refer to the human king of Babylon, as does the rest of the prophecy. 
Isaiah addresses the prophecy directly to the king of Babylon and specifically refers to him as a man. But the prophecy also draws on pagan mythology to depict the king's fall from power. For example, in one Canaanite myth, a god named Athtar, uh, meaning something like Son of Dawn or Morning Star, wanted to rule on Baal's throne from Zaphon, a sacred mountain of the north. Compare the north in verse 13 in the NASB with Zaphon in the NRSV. All right. Uh, many modern scholars, therefore, understand the prophecy in one of two ways. Some argue that the entire prophecy refers only to the human king, using religious imagery typical of the time to describe his humiliation. If that is correct, the king is called the morning star in verse 12, simply as a metaphor that describes him as shining brightly only for a short time. Others argue that the religious imagery implies that the human king's fall from power is an earthly picture of a spiritual event, the fall from power of a heavenly being, um, if this is correct, Isaiah is not endorsing the local pagan mythologies, but he is using them to convey the idea that being that behind the coming uh, defeat of Israel's human enemies is the defeat of their even more powerful spiritual enemy. If this approach is correct, however, it does not follow that Isaiah is alluding to Lucifer's original fall from innocence. Most likely he is intimating his future final defeat. Now go to Ezekiel 28, the passage specifically in question. And... I don't know if you want me to read the whole thing here. I'll just uh, skip to their comments on it. It is clear that in in uh, this first prophecy that the king, the leader of Tyre, is a human ruler, though he arrogantly thinks of himself as a god. Ezekiel states twice that the ruler is a man. Satan is not a man. Evidently, he made himself so rich through trade, Satan is not trading, that he became quite full of himself. But the second oracle from the very beginning seems to point beyond the human king. Now, here's what sounds like it's talking about more like Satan. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were the, on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in all your ways. From the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you, by the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. By the multitude of your iniquities in the right, unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuary. New American Standard. That the human ruler uh, or king of Tyler, uh, king of Tyler, king of Tyre, Ezekiel 28, 12, is still the subject of the prophecy is apparent from the reference to his unjust trading practices in verse 18, which the first oracle also mentioned as the source of the king's wealth. The description of the king as originally wise, beautiful, and perfectly blameless, and living in Eden suggests a comparison, get this, with the fall of Adam, not of Satan. Um, what has led interpreters in the past to equate the king with Satan is the fact that the Hebrew text appears to refer to him as a cherub. However, the Septuagint, an ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, says that he was with the cherub who covers and that the cherub brought him out. Verse 16, most biblical scholars today think this is what the Hebrew originally said and accept this Septuagint reading as correct. The NRSV, for example, translates this statement as follows. With an anointed cherub as guardian, I placed you. The guardian cherub drove you out from among the stones of fire. The bottom line is that neither Isaiah 14 nor Ezekiel 28 clearly refer to the fall of Satan from his original innocence. 
we can surmise that Satan fell for reasons similar to those of the kings of Tyre and Babylon. So, number one, Lucifer is not a proper name for Satan. Uh, it just comes from a Hebrew word that refers to a bright or shining one. And second, neither one of these passages is necessarily talking about Satan. So, again... A biblical problem here, I think, uh, something that some uh, looking at the scholarship, uh, looking at where the majority of scholars are on this would have cle uh, cleared it up for you. All right, let's go back to uh, let's see. Where is he here? I've lost him. Yeah, let's keep let's keep trucking. Oh, that's something I'd kind of like a do over on, don't you? Isaiah says God is the creator of evil. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. Why would a good God ever create evil? Now, you hear the, the, the pathos in his voice there. The, uh, you know, he, he's got away with words here. Why would he create evil? You know, why would a loving God? I'm not making fun of him. I'm commenting on his acumen as a public speaker. And he chuckles when he says God creates evil. All right. Well, I, I want to respond to that. Um, but I, I have to say, Mike Winger actually did a great job responding to this. And so first I want to go to, uh, let's see, where do I want to go? Um, let's listen to what Mike Winger has to say here. Uh, we're not going to listen to the whole thing, obviously, just two little segments. Well, the first thing we need to do is we have to realize that the Bible was not written in English. Um, it was written in, in multiple different languages, but the, the, the Old Testament primarily in Hebrew. And so what is this word in Hebrew? Well, it's this little word right here on your screen. It's pronounced something like ra, okay? And it's, it's a word that we translate evil, but of course it's not an English word. It has its particular Hebrew usage. And we're going to talk a little bit about that right now. So let me go through some of the resources that I used digging up, doing some research on this topic. Uh, one of them was the Dictionary of Biblical Languages with Semantic Domains. And this, this uh, particular resource, it actually gives us 12 possible uses, different connotations of this word, ra, gives 12 different uses of the word. Some of them are things like bad, fierce, sad, or troubled. Those are four of the uses, bad, fierce, sad, or troubled. And in particular, when it says fierce, it means um, pertaining to that which can harm or injure an object. Keep that in mind. It could mean a reference to something that can harm or injure. Well, so that's a little different than what you might have been thinking about at first when you saw, I create evil. What is that referring to? Well, one of the uses is that which causes harm. All right, another resource I looked at was uh, Brown Driver Briggs, and this is a Hebrew and English lexicon, um, and it offers another a range of meaning, another resource to just say, look at here, right on the page, on page 948 of Brown Driver Briggs, it says, evil, distress, misery, injury, calamity calamity if you if, if you're old enough to know what that word means <laughs> or, or you read enough to know what that word means and so we've got we've got this range of meaning in a word it doesn't mean the word means all of those things all the time but how a range of meaning works um, it, it's referring to you know the different possible usages usages of a word it could mean any of these things but not all of them um, okay so the next resource I'll show you is the Lexham Analytical Lexicon of the Hebrew Bible, and it shows many different uses of the term as well. And one of them, relating exactly to the passage we're in, Isaiah 45, verse 7, one of them is this, calamity, as in an event, something that happens that is calamitous. And I'll read to you right out of the, uh, the, the resource itself. 
an event resulting in great loss and misfortune. And then, like many of these lexicons do, it offers example passages where this is the usage of the term, an event resulting in great loss and misfortune. Isaiah 31, 2 and Isaiah 45, verse 7. So here, the, uh, the writers of the lexicon are, are going to go ahead and step out and say, we're confident the meaning of evil or ra in this exact passage, Isaiah 45, 7, is of an event resulting in loss and misfortune. Let me give you one more, one more resource, and this is the uh, Theological Wordbook of the Old Testament. By the way, I, I don't own all these resources. I uh, Well, I do. I guess I own them. Okay, so that's pretty good. Y you see, the point is, he's got all these scholarly resources. All of these are available to anyone. You can take a look. You can just look it up and see what does this word mean, and what do the scholars think this word means in this particular uh, passage. Um, and, and it gives you this passage that he's referring to. And so what we find out is it can mean calamity. It can refer to calamity. So you say, okay, well, that's not any better. God brings peace and God brings calamity. Actually, yes, God, God brings, because uh, the question is, does this mean God brings what we would call moral evil? Does he bring some uh, some sinful thing. No, of course not. God doesn't create these sinful things like that. And in terms of calamity, we find out as you look at the whole of Scripture that sometimes the way God brings calamity is he refrains from stepping in to stop something from happening. And God's not required to step in um, if, if, if what's going to happen is something that he wants to indirectly redeem as a, a disciplinary act or a punishment. So this is not saying what he needs it to say. In fact, um, let's take a look at uh, Winger summarizing here. Um, these, this, this idea is, hey, Cyrus, you don't know me, but I called you before you were born. I knew who you were, and I planned out your life. And you think that these other false gods, these pagan gods, are the ones supplying you with victory. But it is me, the sovereign God of the universe, who has provided the whole setup of your life. And he's going to use Cyrus to bring his people back, the people of Israel back from captivity. And so God is separating himself out. And you can read through the passage and you'll see he's separating himself out from these pagan gods. And God's taking credit for all the sovereign actions of the world. And he's giving no credit to the false pagan gods. So that's an interesting thing. In fact, um, he contrasts light and darkness before this. We see that light and darkness. There's a little bit of a debate on what does he mean when he says, I form the light and create darkness? Is this a reference to creation like Genesis, perhaps? But it could also be a reference to what happens earlier in that same, in that same uh, passage. In fact, just one verse earlier, he says, God says that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There's no one else. And so basically God's saying, like, I, I, I control all the territory from the rising of the sun. In fact, later he says, I, I form light. Yeah, so the point is God's in control of everything, right? God's in control, whether it's the light and the darkness, whether it's peace or calamity, God's in control. Um, this does not mean that God creates moral, sinful, wickedness activities, all right? Uh, let's go back to Seth, and let's continue listening to what he has to say. This information creates a difficult profile of God for Christians to accept. When I was a believer, I would have blocked this one out, but it has to be entertained. Yeah, I might have blocked it out, too, if I understood things the way that Seth does. But when I began to experience doubts throughout my Christian walk, the first thing I did was to go look for those answers. Now, I'm not saying that he didn't. And if the way he went, if he had people that treated him like a pariah or he suspects would have treated him like a pariah, 
then my first thing would be, okay, well, then I need to go find someone else who's not going to treat me like a pariah, who can walk me through this and we can create a group and explore this together and get to the best stuff, the best resources on this. Now, again, he may have done that, but the way he's treating these passages doesn't give me any impression that that's what he did. Um, and again, I don't mean this to sound too insulting towards Seth because there are Christians that see these passages the way he does. Maybe he fell in with those kind of Christians, but the best scholarly stuff on this is not that hard to get your hands on. Um, even before the internet, you could go grab a lexicon and look up what these words mean and, and figure this stuff out. And every pastor's office has a lexicon. Every library has a lexicon. And you can just go take a look at what these words mean or a concordance, a good, good Bible concordance. Um, but I would have maybe laughed at this too. But you know, here's the thing. If I go to a doctor and the doctor tells me something that's crazy, or maybe the doctor treats me as a pariah because I have a particular illness, I don't give up on the medical profession. I go find a doctor who's not going to treat me like that, who can then help me understand how to resolve this problem. Um, that's all I'm saying that I want people to do when they experience questions and doubts in the church is if the people you're around aren't handling your doubts properly, there are Christians out there who will. And given all the churches that I've spoken in, and I've never personally been in one that would shun uh, people like that, at least it didn't seem that way. I'm confident that if your church does, there's a church in your community where they won't, where they will walk with you through this and show you the best resources. Uh, and if you're still not sold on that, okay, fair enough. But they can walk with you through this and show you what is out there and point you to the best resources. And, um, and, and if they're not capable, find, you know, contact me. I'll try to help you walk through these things. But it's there if you want to see it. You don't have to go on thinking that uh, the passage in James 1 means that uh, the, you know, you're a pariah if you doubt in the eyes of not just your church, but also the Bible. You don't have to have these understandings of um, these passages that Lucifer is a name for Satan and you know, that that's what's being referred to. In the, all this, there's, there's, there are answers to these questions that you've got, these doubts, and we want to help you with them. But I might have... I might have felt the way he does if I took these things ultimately the way he does. Retained and examined. If you hold to the God of the Bible, God created Lucifer knowing he would become wicked. God created... Okay, God created Satan, and he did know that he would become wicked. Yes, that's true. Uh, number two, God created evil, Isaiah 45, 7. We've already handled this. That doesn't mean what Seth needs it to mean for this to go through. Evil. God introduced Lucifer's influence to humankind. God allowed Satan to influence mankind. Yes, that's true. Lucifer's influence produces sin. No, Lucifer, Satan's influence is an influence on mankind who has free will. Satan doesn't, despite the common colloquialism, Satan made me do it. Uh, the fact of the matter is, Satan doesn't make you do it. He can't make you do anything. He could, I believe that, yeah, there are all kinds of influences in the world, but God gave you the freedom to make real choices. So yes, God allowed Satan to influence Adam and Eve. He could have stopped it, so he allowed it. But Adam and Eve made their own free choice in the matter. Sin is responsible for disease. Dis sin ultimately results in disease. Yes, that's true. Disease, sin, Lucifer, evil, God. Okay, disease, sin, Adam and Eve. 
right? That's or mankind in general. Because as many people have said, if Adam and Eve hadn't done it, we would have, right? Most of us would have. So disease, sin, Adam and Eve. Lucifer or Satan um, was an influence. And yes, uh, this goes evil happens in the world, but the Isaiah 45, 7 passage that he's needing to use here to get evil to be something that God created doesn't work. And so what you have is God allowed Satan to influence Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve sinned. That's what you have. And guess what? That is surprising to no one. But it's only with a cartoon sort of understanding of the biblical narrative that you come away with something like this um, progression that he's outlined here. I'd like to give you a better understanding that I think is more to the biblical passage that isn't quite as uncharitable to the story or the biblical authors as this one is. I'd rather like to present you with something that I've mentioned before on this show, and that is um, this is all about love. Ultimately, he has cast this in the worst possible light, which requires misunderstandings and unbiblical concepts to get to. I'm going to give you the one that fits nicely with the narrative as the biblical authors have it. The Bible tells us that what God wants is for people to love him and to love each other. It's all about love. Love him, love each other. If you want real love, you have to have real freedom. Otherwise, it's not real love. We're just automatons. So God decides to give man free will. But if you give man free will, along with that, even if you're God, you can't force someone to freely always do the right thing for obvious reasons. Um, because if you're forcing them, it's not free. So you have, even if you're God, if you want to give man freedom, which God doesn't have to do, but if he does want to give them that, the reality is there's going to be evil. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be pain. But it's worth it to get the love. Now you say, well, you wouldn't be saying it's worth it if you saw the horrible things that have happened, things like in cancer wards and things like that. That is why we believe that there is a redemptive plan. And that this life is not all there is. God made a way to solve these problems of sickness, sin, and ultimately death. But it was all worth it to get the love. So he puts Adam and Eve in the garden. Whether you take this story to be literal or not, he puts Adam and Eve in the garden and there are two trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the one that gets all of the attention, especially in these sort of cartoon caricatures of the story. But the tree of life was also there. So every day, what does this look like? It looks like a story of choice, doesn't it? Every day, Adam and Eve had to decide in the midst of the garden whether they were going to eat of the tree of life and be obedient or serve themselves and disobey, exercising their free will against God and choose to disobey by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why was this necessary? It was necessary because only with the presence of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there a genuine ability to choose against that which is right and choose to serve self. And without that option for sacrificing what would serve self, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and choose to obey, do you get re a real act of love? Love requires freedom and sacrifice. And so the tree needs to be there in order to get the genuine love. But as a result of the sinful choices of man, uh, they were excommunicated from the garden and from the tree of life, and then we see the biblical story begin. But ultimately, 
choice becomes important again because throughout the Old Testament, um, we see a story of choice. Do this, I'll bless you. Do this, I will not bless you. There'll be curses. Uh, you must choose who you will serve. Uh, why, why will you not choose? Choose life that you may live, you and your descendants. And then ultimately, the choice to accept or reject the offering that God made for the salvation of mankind to repair what had been done so that you can re-enter a paradise and have access again to the tree of life. But so seldom do skeptics get this narrative right. Fortunately, it's not what the Bible teaches. It's all about love. It's all about love. And Jesus died to take your place and my place that you could come to know him and again one day have access to the tree of life. And right now I have a family, and right now I have your sins forgiven. And I'd love to talk to you about that. Uh, you can contact me anytime. And I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.